Chapter One of the Crystal Stopper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathy Barrett. The Crystal Stopper by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter One The Arrests. The two boats fastened to the little pier that jutted out from the garden lay rocking in its shadow. Here and there lighted windows showed through the thick mist on the margins of the lake. The Enghien Casino opposite blazed with light, though it was late in the season, the end of September. A few stars appeared through the clouds. A light breeze ruffled the surface of the water. Arsène Lupin left the summer-house where he was smoking a cigar, and bending forward at the end of the pier, "'Growler?' he asked. "'Masher? Are you there?' A man rose from each of the boats, and one of them answered, "'Yes, Governor.' "'Get ready. I hear the car coming with Gilbert and Vaucheray.' He crossed the garden, walked round a house in process of construction, the scaffolding of which loomed overhead, and cautiously opened the door on the Avenue de Ceinture. He was not mistaken. A bright light flashed round the bend, and a large, open motor-car drew up, whence sprang two men in greatcoats, with the collars turned up and caps. It was Gilbert and Vaucheray, Gilbert, a young fellow of twenty or twenty-two, with an attractive cast of features and a supple and sinewy frame, Vaucheray, older, shorter, with grizzled hair and a pale, sickly face. "'Well?' asked Lupin. "'Did you see him, the deputy?' "'Yes, Governor,' said Gilbert. "'We saw him take the seven-forty tram for Paris, as we knew he would.' "'Then we are free to act?' "'Absolutely. The Villa Marie-Thérèse is ours to do as we please with.' The chauffeur had kept his seat. Lupin gave him his orders. "'Don't wait here. It might attract attention. Be back at half-past nine exactly, in time to load the car, unless the whole business falls through.' "'Why should it fall through?' observed Gilbert. The motor drove away, and Lupin, taking the road to the lake with his two companions, replied, "'Why? Because I didn't prepare the plan, and when I don't do a thing myself I am only half-confident.' "'Nonsense, Governor. I've been working with you for three years now. I'm beginning to know the ropes.' "'Yes, my lad, you're beginning,' said Lupin. "'And that's just why I'm afraid of blunders. Here, get in with me. And you, Vaucheray, take the other boat. That's it. And now push off, boys, and make as little noise as you can.' Growler and Masher, the two oarsmen, made straight for the opposite bank, a little to the left of the casino. They met a boat containing a couple locked in each other's arms floating at random, and another in which a number of people were singing at the top of their voices, and that was all. Lupin shifted closer to his companion and said, under his breath, "'Tell me, Gilbert, did you think of this job, or was it Vaucheray's idea?' "'Upon my word, I couldn't tell you. We've both of us been discussing it for weeks.' "'The thing is, I don't trust Vaucheray. He's a low ruffian when one gets to know him. I can't make out why I don't get rid of him.' "'Oh, Governor!' "'Yes, yes, I mean what I say. He's a dangerous fellow, to say nothing of the fact that he has some rather serious peccadilloes on his conscience.' He sat silent for a moment and continued. "'So you're quite sure that you saw Daubrecq, the deputy?' "'Saw him with my own eyes, Governor.' "'And you know that he has an appointment in Paris?' "'He's going to the theatre. "'Very well, but his servants have remained behind at the Anguien Villa. "'The cook has been sent away.' As for the valet Léonard, who is Daubrecq's confidential man, he'll wait for his master in Paris. 
They can't get back from town before one o'clock in the morning. But... but what? We must reckon with a possible freak of fancy on Daubrecq's part, a change of mind, an unexpected return, and so arrange to have everything finished and done within an hour. And when did you get these details? This morning. Vaucheray and I at once thought that it was a favourable moment. I selected the garden of the unfinished house which we have just left as the best place to start from, for the house is not watched at night. I sent for two mates to row the boats, and I telephoned to you. That's the whole story. Have you the keys? The keys of the front door. Is that the villa which I see from here, standing in its own grounds? Yes, the villa Marie-Thérèse, and as the two others, with the gardens touching it on either side, have been unoccupied since this day week, we shall be able to remove what we please at our leisure, and I swear to you, Governor, it's well worth while. The job's much too simple, mumbled Lupin. No charm about it. They landed in a little creek whence rose a few stone steps, under cover of a mouldering roof. Lupin reflected that shipping the furniture would be easy work, but suddenly he said, "'There are people at the villa. Look, a light.' "'It's a gas-jet, Governor. The light's not moving.' The growler stayed by the boats, with instructions to keep watch, while the masher, the other rower, went to the gate on the Avenue de Ceinture, and Dupin and his two companions crept in the shadow to the foot of the steps. Gilbert went up first. Groping in the dark, he inserted first the big door-key and then the latch-key. Both turned easily in their locks, the door opened, and the three men walked in. A gas-jet was flaring in the hall. "'You see, Governor?' said Gilbert. "'Yes, yes,' said Dupin, in a low voice. "'But it seems to me that the light which I saw shining did not come from here. "'Where did it come from, then?' "'I can't say. Is this the drawing-room?' "'No,' replied Gilbert, who was not afraid to speak pretty loudly. "'No. By way of precaution he keeps everything on the first floor, in his bedroom and in the two rooms on either side of it. "'And where is the staircase?' on the right behind the curtain. Lupin moved to the curtain and was drawing the hanging aside when, suddenly, at four steps on the left, a door opened and a head appeared, a pallid man's head with terrified eyes. "'Help! Murder!' shouted the man, and he rushed back into the room. "'It's Léonard, the valet!' cried Gilbert. "'If he makes a fuss, I'll out him!' growled Vaucheray. "'You'll jolly well do nothing of the sort, do you hear, Vaucheray?' said Lupin peremptorily and he darted off in pursuit of the servant. He first went through a dining-room, where he saw a lamp still lit, with plates and a bottle around it, and he found Léonard at the further end of a pantry, making vain efforts to open the window. "'Don't move, sporty! No kid!' "'Ah, the brute!' He had thrown himself flat on the floor on seeing Léonard raise his arm at him. Three shots were fired in the dusk of the pantry, and then the valet came tumbling to the ground, seized by the legs by Lupin, who snatched his weapon from him and gripped him by the throat. "'Get out, you dirty brute!' he growled. "'He very nearly did for me. Here, Vaucheray, secure this gentleman.' He threw the light of his pocket-lantern on the servant's face and chuckled. "'He's not a pretty gentleman, either. You can't have a very clear conscience, Léonard, besides to play flunky to Daubrecq the deputy. Have you finished, Vaucheray? I don't want to hang about here forever.' "'There's no danger, Governor,' said Gilbert. "'Oh, really? So you think that shots can't be heard?' "'Quite impossible.' "'No matter. We must look sharp. Vaucheray, take the lamp and let's go upstairs.' He took Gilbert by the arm, and, as he dragged him to the first floor, "'You ass!' he said. "'Is that the way you make inquiries? Wasn't I right to have my doubts?' "'Look here, Governor. I couldn't know that he could change his mind and come back to dinner.' 
One's got to know everything when one has the honour of breaking into people's houses. You numbskull! I'll remember you in Vaucheray. A nice pair of gassoons! The sight of the furniture on the first floor pacified Lupin, and he started on his inventory with the satisfied air of a collector who has looked in to treat himself to a few works of art. By jingo! There's not much of it, but what there is is pucka. There's nothing the matter with this representative of the people in the question of taste. Four Aubusson chairs, a bureau signed Percier Fontaine for a wager, two inlays by Gouttière, a genuine Fragonard, and a sham Natier which any American millionaire will swallow for the asking. In short, a fortune. And there are curmudgeons who pretend that there's nothing but faked stuff left. Dash it all! Why don't they do as I do? They should look about. Gilbert and Vaucheret, following Lupin's orders and instructions, at once proceeded methodically to remove the bulkier pieces. The first boat was filled in half an hour, and it was decided that the growler and the masher should go on ahead and begin to load the motor-car. Lupin went to see them start. On returning to the house, it struck him, as he passed through the hall, that he heard a voice in the pantry. He went there and found Léonard lying flat on his stomach, quite alone, with his hands tied behind his back. "'So it's you growling, my confidential flunky. Don't get excited. It's almost finished. Only if you make too much noise you'll oblige us to take severer measures. Do you like pears? We might give you one, you know. A choke pear.' As he went upstairs he again heard the same sound, and stopping to listen he caught these words uttered in a hoarse, groaning voice, which came, beyond a doubt, from the pantry. "'Help! Murder! Help! I shall be killed! Inform the commissary!' "'The fellow's clean off his chump,' muttered Lupin. "'By Jove! To disturb the police at nine o'clock in the evening! There's a notion for you!' He set to work again. It took longer than he expected, for they discovered in the cupboards all sorts of valuable knick-knacks, which it would have been very wrong to disdain, and, on the other hand, Vaucheray and Gilbert were going about their investigations with signs of laboured concentration that nonplussed him. At long last he lost his patience. "'That will do,' he said. "'We're not going to spoil the whole job and keep the motor waiting for the sake of the few odd bits that remain. I'm taking the boat.' They were now by the waterside, and Dupin went down the steps. Gilbert held him back. "'I say, Governor, we want one more look round five minutes, no longer.' "'But what for, dash it all?' "'Well, it's like this. We were told of an old reliquary, something stunning. Well, we can't lay our hands on it. And I was thinking, there's a cupboard with a big lock to it in the pantry. You see, we can't very well.' He was already on his way to the villa. Vaucheray ran back, too. "'I'll give you ten minutes, not a second longer,' cried Lupin. In ten minutes I'm off. But the ten minutes passed, and he was still waiting. He looked at his watch. A quarter past nine, he said to himself. This is madness. And he also remembered that Gilbert and Vaucheray had behaved rather queerly throughout the removal of the things, keeping close together and apparently watching each other. What could be happening? Lupin mechanically returned to the house, urged by a feeling of anxiety which he was unable to explain, and at the same time, he listened to a dull sound which rose in the distance, from the direction of Enghien, and which seemed to be coming nearer. People strolling about, no doubt. He gave a sharp whistle and then went to the main gate, to take a glance down the avenue. But suddenly, as he was opening the gate, a shot rang out, followed by a yell of pain. He returned at a run, went round the house, leapt up the steps, and rushed to the dining-room. "'Blast it all! What are you doing there, you two? 
Gilbert and Vaucheray, locked in a furious embrace, were rolling on the floor, uttering cries of rage. Their clothes were dripping with blood. Lupin flew at them to separate them. But already Gilbert had got his adversary down, and was wrenching out of his hand something which Lupin had no time to see. And Vaucheray, who was losing blood through a wound in the shoulder, fainted. "'Who hurt him? You, Gilbert?' asked Lupin furiously. "'No, Léonard.' "'Léonard? Why, he was tied up!' He undid his fastenings and got hold of his revolver. "'The scoundrel! Where is he?' Lupin took the lamp and went into the pantry. The manservant was lying on his back, with his arms outstretched, a dagger stuck in his throat and a livid face. A red stream trickled from his mouth. "'Ah!' gasped Lupin, after examining him. "'He's dead!' "'Do you think so? Do you think so?' stammered Gilbert, in a trembling voice. "'He's dead, I tell you. It was Vaucheray, it was Vaucheray who did it.' Pale with anger, Lupin caught hold of him. "'It was Vaucheray, was it? And you too, you blackguard, since you were there and didn't stop him. Blood! Blood! You know I won't have it. Well, it's a bad lookout for you, my fine fellows. You'll have to pay the damage, and you won't get off cheaply, either. Mind the guillotine!' And shaking him violently, what was it? Why did he kill him? He wanted to go through his pockets and take the key of the cupboard from him. When he stooped over him, he saw that the man unloosed his arms. He got frightened, and he stabbed him. But the revolver shot? It was Léonard. He had his revolver in his hand. He just had strength to take aim before he died. And the key of the cupboard? Vaucheray took it. Did he open it? And did he find what he was after? Yes. And you wanted to take the thing from him? What sort of thing was it? The reliquary? No, it was too small for that. Then what was it? Answer me, will you? Lupin gathered from Gilbert's silence and the determined expression on his face that he would not obtain a reply. With a threatening gesture, I'll make you talk, my man. Sure as my name's Lupin, you shall come out with it. But for the moment we must see about decamping. Here, help me. We must get Vaucheray into the boat. They had returned to the dining-room, and Gilbert was bending over the wounded man, when Lupin stopped him. Listen. They exchanged one look of alarm. Someone was speaking in the pantry, a very low, strange, very distant voice. Nevertheless, as they at once made certain, there was no one in the room, no one except the dead man, whose dark outline lay stretched upon the floor. And the voice spake anew, by turns shrill, stifled, bleating, stammering, yelling, fearsome. It uttered indistinct words, broken syllables. Lupin felt the top of his head covering with perspiration. What was this incoherent voice, mysterious as a voice from beyond the grave? He had knelt down by the manservant's side. The voice was silent, and then began again. "'Give us a better light,' he said to Gilbert. He was trembling a little, shaken with a nervous dread which he was unable to master, for there was no doubt possible. When Gilbert had removed the shade from the lamp, Lupin realized that the voice issued from the corpse itself, without a movement of the lifeless mass, without a quiver of the bleeding mouth. "'Governor, I've got the shivers,' stammered Gilbert. Again the same voice, the same snuffling whisper. Suddenly Lupin burst out laughing, seized the corpse, and pulled it aside. "'Exactly,' he said, catching sight of an object made of polished metal. "'Exactly. That's it.' Well, upon my word, it took me long enough. On the spot on the floor which he had uncovered lay the receiver of a telephone, 
the cord of which ran up to the apparatus fixed on the wall, at the usual height. Lupin put the receiver to his ear. The noise began again at once, but it was a mixed noise, made up of different calls, exclamations, confused cries, the noise produced by a number of persons questioning one another at the same time. "'Are you there? You won't answer. It's awful. They must have killed him. What is it? Keep up your courage. There's help on the way. Police. Soldiers.' "'Dash it!' said Lupin, dropping the receiver. The truth appeared to him in a terrifying vision. Quite at the beginning, while the things upstairs were being moved, Léonard, whose bonds were not securely fastened, had contrived to scramble to his feet, to unhook the receiver, probably with his teeth, to drop it and to appeal for assistance to the Enghien telephone exchange. And those were the words which Lupin had overheard, after the first boat started. Help! Murder! I shall be killed! And this was the reply of the exchange. The police were hurrying to the spot, and Lupin remembered the sounds which he had heard from the garden four or five minutes earlier at most. "'The police! Take to your heels!' he shouted, darting across the dining-room. "'What about Vaucheray?' asked Gilbert. "'Sorry, can't be helped.' But Vaucheray, waking from his torpor, entreated him as he passed. "'Governor, you wouldn't leave me like this!' Lupin stopped in spite of the danger, and was lifting the wounded man, with Gilbert's assistance, when a loud din arose outside. "'Too late,' he said. At that moment blows shook the hall door at the back of the house. He ran to the front steps. A number of men had already turned the corner of the house at a rush. He might have managed to keep ahead of them, with Gilbert, and reach the waterside. But what chance was there of embarking and escaping under the enemy's fire? He locked and bolted the door. "'We are surrounded and done for,' spluttered Gilbert. "'Hold your tongue,' said Lupin. "'But they've seen us, Governor. There, they're knocking.' "'Hold your tongue,' Lupin repeated. "'Not a word, not a movement.' He himself remained unperturbed, with an utterly calm face and the pensive attitude of one who has all the time that he needs to examine a delicate situation from every point of view. He had reached one of those minutes which he called the superior moments of existence, those which alone give a value and a price to life. On such occasions, however threatening the danger, he always began by counting to himself slowly. One, two, three, four, five, six, until the beating of his heart became normal and regular. Then, and not till then, he reflected, but with what intensity, with what perspicacity, with what a profound intuition of possibilities. All the factors of the problem were present in his mind. He foresaw everything. He admitted everything, and he took his resolution in all logic and in all certainty. After thirty or forty seconds, while the men outside were banging at the doors and picking the locks, he said to his companion, "'Follow me.' Returning to the dining-room, he softly opened the sash and drew the Venetian blinds of a window in the side wall. People were coming and going, rendering flight out of the question. Thereupon he began to shout with all his might, in a breathless voice, "'This way! Help! I've got them! This way!' He pointed his revolver and fired two shots into the treetops. Then he went back to Vaucheray, bent over him and smeared his face and hands with the wounded man's blood. Lastly, turning upon Gilbert, he took him violently by the shoulders and threw him to the floor. "'What do you want, governor? There's a nice thing to do.' "'Let me do as I please,' said Lupin, laying an imperative stress on every syllable. "'I'll answer for everything. I'll answer for the two of you.' 
Let me do as I like with you. I'll get you both out of prison, but I can only do that if I'm free. Excited cries rose through the open window. This way, he shouted. I've got them. Help! And quietly, in a whisper, Just think for a moment. Have you anything to say to me? Something that can be of use to us? Gilbert was too much taken aback to understand Lupin's plan, and he struggled furiously. Vaucheray showed more intelligence. Moreover, he had given up all hope of escape because of his wound. And he snarled, Let the governor have his way, you ass. As long as he gets off, isn't that the great thing? Suddenly, Lupin remembered the article which Gilbert had put in his pocket after capturing it from Vaucheray. He now tried to take it in his turn. No, not that. Not if I know it growled Gilbert, managing to release himself. Lupin floored him once more. But two men suddenly appeared at the window, and Gilbert yielded, and handing the thing to Lupin, who pocketed it without looking at it, whispered, "'Here you are, Governor. I'll explain. You can be sure that—' He did not have time to finish. Two policemen, and others after them, and soldiers who entered through every door and window, came to Lupin's assistance. Gilbert was at once seized and firmly bound. Lupin withdrew. Oh, I'm glad you've come, he said. The beggar's given me a lot of trouble. I wounded the other, but this one. The commissary of police asked him hurriedly, Have you seen the manservant? Have they killed him? I don't know, he answered. You don't know? Why, I came with you from Anguien on hearing of the murder. Only while you were going round the left of the house, I went round the right. There was a window open. I climbed up just as these two ruffians were about to jump down. I fired at this one, pointing to Vaucheray and seized hold of his pal. How could he have been suspected? He was covered with blood. He had handed over the valet's murderers. Half a score of people had witnessed the end of the heroic combat which he had delivered. Besides, the uproar was too great for anyone to take the trouble to argue, or to waste time in entertaining doubts. In the height of the first confusion, the people of the neighborhood invaded the villa. One and all lost their heads. They ran to every side, upstairs, downstairs, to the very cellar, they asked one another questions, yelled and shouted, and no one dreamt of checking Lupin's statements, which sounded so plausible. However, the discovery of the body in the pantry restored the commissary to a sense of his responsibility. He issued orders, had the house cleared and placed policemen at the gate to prevent anyone from passing in or out. Then, without further delay, he examined the spot and began his inquiry. Vaucheray gave his name. Gilbert refused to give his, on the plea that he would only speak in the presence of a lawyer. But when he was accused of the murder, he informed against Vaucheray, who defended himself by denouncing the other, and the two of them vociferated at the same time, with the evident wish to monopolize the commissary's attention. When the commissary turned to Lupin to request his evidence, he perceived that the stranger was no longer there. Without the least suspicion, he said to one of the policemen, "'Go and tell that gentleman that I should like to ask him a few questions.' They looked about for the gentleman. Someone had seen him standing on the steps, lighting a cigarette. The next news was that he had given cigarettes to a group of soldiers, and strolled towards the lake, saying that they were to call him if he was wanted. They called him. No one replied. But a soldier came running up. The gentleman had just got into a boat and was rowing away for all he was worth. The commissary looked at Gilbert and realized that he had been tricked. "'Stop him!' he shouted. "'Fire on him! He's an accomplice!' He himself rushed out, followed by two policemen, while the others remained with the prisoners. On reaching the bank, he saw the gentleman, a hundred yards away, taking off his hat to him in the dusk. One of the policemen discharged his revolver without thinking. The wind carried the sound of words across the water. 
The gentleman was singing as he rode. Go, little bark, float in the dark. But the commissary saw a skiff fastened to the landing-stage of the adjoining property. He scrambled over the hedge separating the two gardens, and after ordering the soldiers to watch the banks of the lake and to seize the fugitive if he tried to put ashore, the commissary and two of his men pulled off in pursuit of Lupin. It was not a difficult matter, for they were able to follow his movements by the intermittent light of the moon and to see that he was trying to cross the lakes while bearing toward the right, that is to say, toward the village of Saint-Gratien. Moreover, the commissary soon perceived that, with the aid of his men, and thanks perhaps to the comparative lightness of his craft, he was rapidly gaining on the other. In ten minutes he had decreased the interval between them by one half. "'That's it,' he cried. "'We shan't even need the soldiers to keep him from landing. I very much want to make the fellow's acquaintance. He's a cool hand, and no mistake.' The funny thing was that the distance was now diminishing at an abnormal rate, as though the fugitive had lost heart at realizing the futility of the struggle. The policemen redoubled their efforts. The boat shot across the water with the swiftness of a swallow. Another hundred yards at most, and they would reach the man. "'Halt!' cried the commissary. The enemy, whose huddled shape they could make out in the boat, no longer moved. The skulls drifted with the stream, and this absence of all motion had something alarming about it. A ruffian of that stamp might easily lie in wait for his aggressors, sell his life dearly, and even shoot them dead before they had a chance of attacking him. "'Surrender!' shouted the commissary. The sky at that moment was dark. The three men lay flat at the bottom of their skiff, for they thought they perceived a threatening gesture. The boat, carried by its own impetus, was approaching the other. The commissary growled, "'We won't let ourselves be sniped. Let's fire at him. Are you ready?' and he roared once more, "'Surrender! If not!' No reply. The enemy did not budge. "'Surrender! Hands up! You refuse? So much the worse for you. I'm counting. One. Two. The policemen did not wait for the word of command. They fired, and at once, bending over their oars, gave the boat so powerful an impulse that it reached the goal in a few strokes. The commissary watched, revolver in hand, ready for the least movement. He raised his arm. "'If you stir, I'll blow out your brains.' But the enemy did not stir for a moment, and when the boat was bumped and the two men, letting go their oars, prepared for the formidable assault, the commissary understood the reason of this passive attitude. There was no one in the boat. The enemy had escaped by swimming, leaving in the hands of the victor a certain number of the stolen articles which, heaped up and surmounted by a jacket and a bowler hat, might be taken at a pinch, in the semi-darkness, vaguely to represent the figure of a man. They struck matches and examined the enemy's cast clothes. There were no initials in the hat. The jacket contained neither papers nor pocket-book. Nevertheless, they made a discovery which was destined to give the case no little celebrity, and which had a terrible influence on the fate of Gilbert and Vaucheray. In one of the pockets was a visiting-card which the fugitive had left behind the card of Arsène Lupin. At almost the same moment, while the police, towing the captured skiff behind them, continued their empty search, and while the soldiers stood drawn up on the bank, straining their eyes to try and follow the fortunes of the naval combat, the aforesaid Arsène Lupin was quietly landing at the very spot which he had left two hours earlier. He was met there by his two other accomplices, the growler and the masher, flung them a few sentences by way of explanation, 
jumped in the motor-car among Daubrecq the deputy's armchairs and other valuables, wrapped himself in his furs, and drove, by deserted roads, to his repository at Neuilly, where he left the chauffeur. A taxicab brought him back to Paris, and put him down by the church of Saint-Philippe-du-Roule, not far from which, in the rue de Matignon, he had a flat on the entresol floor, of which none of his gang, excepting Gilbert, knew, a flat with a private entrance. He was glad to take off his clothes and rub himself down, for in spite of his strong constitution he felt chilled to the bone. On retiring to bed, he emptied the contents of his pockets, as usual, on the mantelpiece. It was not till then that he noticed, near his pocket-book and his keys, the object which Gilbert had put into his hand at the last moment. He was very much surprised. It was a decanter-stopper, a little crystal-stopper, like those used for the bottles in a liqueur-stand. And this crystal-stopper had nothing particular about it. The most that Lupin observed was that the knob, with its many facets, was gilded right down to the indent. But to tell the truth, this detail did not seem to him of a nature to attract special notice. And it was this bit of glass to which Gilbert and Vaucheray attached such stubborn importance, he said to himself. It was for this that they killed the valet, fought each other, wasted their time, risked prison, trial, the scaffold. Too tired to linger further upon this matter, exciting though it appeared to him, he replaced the stopper on the chimney-piece and got into bed. He had bad dreams. Gilbert and Vaucheray were kneeling on the flags of their cells, wildly stretching out their hands to him and yelling with fright. "'Help! Help!' they cried. But notwithstanding all his efforts, he was unable to move. He himself was fastened by invisible bonds. And trembling, obsessed by a monstrous vision, he watched the dismal preparations, the cutting of the condemned men's hair and shirt-collars, the squalid tragedy. "'By Jove!' he said, when he woke after a series of nightmares. "'There's a lot of bad omens. Fortunately, we don't err on the side of superstition. Otherwise—' And he added, "'For that matter, we have a talisman which, to judge by Gilbert and Vaucheray's behaviour, should be enough, with Lupin's help, to frustrate bad luck and secure the triumph of the good cause. Let's have a look at that crystal stopper.' He sprang out of bed to take the thing and examine it more closely. An exclamation escaped him. The crystal stopper had disappeared. End of chapter 1